Welcome to Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Probably like you, I have been curious about successful people all of my life. With this podcast, I hope to talk with accomplished folks, offering a bit of their backstory, but mostly allowing them to share pearls of wisdom personally and professionally, and perhaps a few secrets on how to live life fully and with passion in order to pass the power on to you. Today, I welcome Dr. Bay Swanjin. His career has led him to the position of chairman of Singapore's Economic Development Board since 2014. I wanted Swanjin to pass the power and share his impressive story with all of us. Thank you for being here, Swanjin. Any soundbite to add to describe yourself personally and professionally? Well, firstly, thank you, Paige, for uh, inviting me to be part of uh, this series of uh, podcasts that you're, you're hosting. I came to Singapore at the age of 12. I started secondary school in Singapore at Monks Hill, which unfortunately has now been closed. And I stayed on in Singapore Shu University and then uh, was lucky enough to join the ADB in 1992. So you, you left your family when you were 12, as you said, in Malaysia, yes. and you yes. came to Singapore to study. That's right. And I'm told that you, you were in a rented room. Yeah. So uh, in those days, this was uh, in the 80s, right? It wasn't uncommon for uh, students from Malaysia and Indonesia uh, to basically come to school in Singapore because, you know, Singapore offered Great then and, and today a very good education system. So foreign students would come and there would be families in Singapore that would basically rent a room, provide board and lodging uh, to, to the foreign students and I was one of them. And I've read that you aced your A-levels and then you went back to KL to do an internship with a, <laughs> wait for it, uh, listeners, a fashion designer? I did. Is it true? I, I actually started a small business since uh, secondary street. First retailing clothes uh, from uh, then a leading Malaysian designer, Edmund Sir, before eventually starting a company to design and, and retail clothes with a couple of friends who today are still in the fashion industry. Yeah, and then after A-levels, you know, it's a six, seven month period, I thought I would work and uh, earn a a regular paycheck, so I decided to work for the same Malaysian designer, Edmund Sir, in KL. I did that. I did that for six months. That's fabulous. I think for those people out there thinking <laughs> they want to be chairman of EDB one day, how can I do it? I mean, you can even dip your toe into fashion. I think that's really encouraging for young people. I think it just speaks to the fact that you can't overplan. Parents certainly can't overplan for their kids, and there's a lot of serendipity in where we end up. You just have to connect the dots. So I know that you wanted to study medicine mm -hmm. and you applied to NUS and instead you were offered a position to study law. Mm -hmm. And then last minute you received the option to study medicine, which you did. And I've always wondered, is this because you were being a good son, filial piety? And would you suggest to parents today to kind of mandate what a child does? I was 18 then, uh, not really sure what I wanted to do. And I have two brothers, two elder brothers who are both doctors. And I went to Raffles JC where they already kind of labeled us to be in the medicine class because we did the free sciences, right? And it just seemed to be the natural thing to go for. So medicine was the first choice. You know, honestly, there was no second choice. And so with that medical degree, did you ever practice? I did. I did one year of housemanship, followed by six months as a medical officer. But during that six months, I was actually interviewing to join EDB. And thereafter, even after I joined EDB, 
I spent Sunday evenings for three years practicing as a locum. So a locum is uh, basically a doctor who stands in for the regular doctor because you know, they need a break as well. Uh, and I did that because my dad was worried that I wouldn't do well in EDB. Sounds like a very practical father. A very, very practical father. Why EDB? Why were you keen to join the Economic Development Board? Actually, a very simple decision. All students who graduated from the National University of Singapore, in fact, I think even today, across all the three universities, if you basically took on the subsidy from the government, you would be obliged to serve in the government healthcare system for six years. And since I was quite clear that I wasn't going to practice medicine as my lifelong career, I thought that if I chose to join another government agency, I might have a slim chance of being able to serve my bond with a government agency. So I applied for EDB because that was the one government agency, even back then, you know, certainly back then with Mr. Philip as chairman, you know, you would read about in the newspapers. I had a good friend who was there in a creative business unit. And since I always had that interest in design and creative business, I thought, oh, okay, you know, why not give it a shot? So complete serendipity. I was lucky, right place, right time. I joined, it took me six months to persuade EDB. And during that time, I was also trying to persuade the Ministry of Health to actually permit me to do that. But eventually EDB took me in, not for creative business, but to actually staff up their pharmaceutical and healthcare uh -huh. portfolio. More on Pass the Power after the break. you did not want to practice medicine? Um, fourth year medical school. I enjoyed studies. I enjoyed the medical course and it was intellectually very stimulating. But at the same time, I didn't feel the calling. And I think if you want to practice medicine, it's really not just a job. It's really not just a career. You, you must really feel it in yourself that this is something you wanted to do. You must have the empathy to help patients, to help people, to care for people. And I didn't feel I was going to be able to do that year in, year out for the next 40 years of my life. It's a good thing because we need people with passion in medicine, right? Yes. To, to take care of us for sure. I'm wondering if that knowledge has been beneficial to you at EDB. And since we've had this pandemic, has the government called on you in any way to use that knowledge? At three points, uh, at a point of entry, uh, as I mentioned, I applied to join a creative business unit. The unit head at that point in time was prepared to take me in, but the, the wisdom of uh, Mr. Philip Yeo and Mr. Tan Chin Nam, who was the managing director then, they felt that I should use my background in medicine to actually be in the pharmaceutical healthcare portfolio. So for the first three years, that's what I did. And then I was eventually posted out to New York, where again, there was a concentration of the leading pharmaceutical and uh, medical technology companies there. was based in the U.S. for five years for EDB. When I returned from the U.S., I joined Mr. Philip Yeo in the Biomedical Sciences Initiative. He was leading that on behalf of the government and I was part of the team that implemented those plans that you know, led to Biopolis, you know, has led to the Biomedical Sciences Cluster that we see today. Uh, and then today, yeah, in the last 12 months or so, I was part of the team led by Mr. Liu Yip, Head of Civil Service, to basically identify and negotiate the advanced purchase agreements to secure the vaccines for Singapore. Wow. Yeah, so three different 
periods of my career in EDB where my medical background was useful. Right. Well, you talked about being in New York, and that's something that I always think about: the fact that you were able, or when people are able, to leave a country and work outside the country. Mm-hmm. And then come home because they've gained that great work experience. They've learned about a different culture. And I wonder, do you have any tangible examples of how you became a better professional by living outside of what you knew? Both professionally and personally, I still regard the six years I lived in the U.S. as、uh, one of the most enriching in my life. I believe it shaped. The swanjin that I am today.、Um, I wasn't just only in New York. I was in DC for about a year and a half, and then in New York for three and a half years before spending a year in California. But that was the period before 9/11, and it was a very different America. In New York City, you had Rudy Giuliani, who had cleaned up New York City. It was wonderfully livable. So I really enjoyed my stay there. Now, what did I learn on a personal level? It was just the fact that, for one, you really Shouldn't only be thinking about what you need to do for your career, but there is so much to learn, so much to gain from just everyday encounters you know, with the person you're sitting next to in the subway, and just having a chat with them, just understanding what their life is about, really opened up my eyes to a completely different culture, people with very very different backgrounds. I'm sure I was just scratching the surface, but a little bit of an understanding what America is all about. You know, chatting with the cab drivers in Washington D.C. and you know many of them、uh, immigrants from Africa or other parts of the world, right? And、uh, just hearing how hard they have to work, but on the other hand, how welcoming and generous、uh, America is. So that gave me a, a good sense of what America stands for. Swanjin, some people say that you're Singapore's top salesman. <laughs> <laughs> you bring big, small, new, and exciting businesses to Singapore, and you lead an impressive team of 600 people with offices in the U.S., in China, London, Switzerland, Sweden, South Korea, Amsterdam, Tokyo, Jakarta. Mumbai, Frankfurt, Paris, and Brazil. It's, I mean, to put it bluntly, a lot of people to oversee, and there is also a stereotype of bureaucrats not always wanting to rock the boat. And I wonder how you inspire this large team and you get them to think outside of the box and to stay ahead of the curve. Firstly, this is an organization. Well, twenty twenty one, EDB will turn sixty years old, and this is an organization that was built. To be the one-stop shop for investors who wanted to set up operations in Singapore, and that remains the reason why we exist. And that meant needing to help investors navigate through rules that may not be helpful for whatever it is that they want to do in Singapore. To in fact take that information and that feedback to help other government agencies who are regulators. To maybe improve the rules and the regulations that they are putting in place. So this interface role, very very much part of EDB's history. I know a magazine called Me Singapore's Top Salesman. That's absolutely furthest from the truth because I'm actually working with a fantastic team, but a team that has that culture of being very focused on the customer, very focused on the investors that create all the good jobs that are available here in Singapore. And because of that culture. We have a system going. We are very clear about mission. We have very good processes to help investors. But in terms of pushing the boundaries back home on the regulations that may not be pro-business,、uh, that's also something we do. And that's where sometimes we may be so-called at, at loggerheads, or we may have differences with our fellow colleagues in, in other government agencies. But that's the reputation of EDB in the government, and maybe that's why companies do like us. Yes. Before we proceed, let's take a quick break. 
that Singapore is such a success story now that you're not having to do a hard sale on anyone because businesses want to come here. So how much are you recruiting versus turning businesses away? It's about selecting the right types of activities. That's one. Uh, not necessarily not being welcoming, but simply applying the incentives or resources that we can make available to these companies in a very selective fashion. Do the sorts of activities that we believe can help advance the economy that can create good careers for residents in Singapore. But we have to compete very hard for some types of activities people may not associate Singapore naturally. So manufacturing, for instance, was the reason why EDB was set up in 1961. And it was possible to industrialize Singapore back then because you know, wages were low, resources were plenty. And that was a time where not many countries had jumped onto the bandwagon of attracting manufacturing investments as a way to accelerate the growth of the economy. So we did it then, but very soon we ran up into labor constraints, which, you know, wage increases and so on, and resource constraints. But as a policy, as a strategy, we believe that a country has to have manufacturing as an integral part of the economy. And that's not something many people would associate with Singapore. But yet manufacturing continues to contribute 20% to the GDP in Singapore. Now, that particular part of our work is, is not easy. And we had to compete very hard. 2020, we were elated to when we were able to secure Hyundai, Hyundai mm. Models, who has decided to locate an electric vehicle develop product development center, but also manufacturing location. Yeah, albeit an experiment, an experiment to really custom build EVs. The capacity isn't large, but it's something we are very excited about. It's very much part of the whole advanced manufacturing narrative that we are, we are pushing. Plus, with this being such a small island nation, I mean, it seems like the perfect place to have these electric cars running everywhere. Right? Well, certainly for Singapore, yeah. yes, we, we should be looking at uh, vehicles that are environmentally friendly. EVs is just one option. You know? yes. In future, maybe it will be uh, hydrogen fuel cells. I've also read that you count yourself lucky to be so successful professionally. And I've always been a believer in luck comes to the well-prepared. Don't you think there's a large part of that is doing your homework? If there's one aspect of my career that, that I was a little bit more deliberate about, it was to build on what I did previously. So any new job that I took on, I thought about what is it that I could learn from that new job that will build on what I learned previously. That continues to be the guiding principle, if you may, that I carry with me when I think about a career. Aside from that, I, I honestly have been lucky. I worked for <laughs> great bosses. You know, to work for Mr. Philip Yeo and Mr. Lim Siong Guan, and then Mr. Liu Yip, who's the current head of civil service. I just, you know, how lucky can you be? Because Mr. Yeo and, and Mr. Lim were the you know, two of the pillars of a Singapore civil service for, for a couple of decades. Right. You know, and then working for Liu, it's, it's just been a huge stroke of good fortune. Well, I'm sure down the road, there are going to be young people who say the same thing about working with you, Swan I don't know. I, I, sure. I hope so. And what about your employees? How many are working from home? And then I keep hearing people complaining that it's really difficult to engage the employees when they're working from home. So how are you dealing with this struggle? We are lucky. I think people who work in government, government agencies in general, are fortunate because we have a clear mission. And when you have a clear mission, uh, that drives and that motivates employees, whether they're working from home or they're at the office. The downside about working from home is the inability to have two objectives met. One would be idea generation, brainstorming, 
The second would be really how do you help the newer officers kind of integrate into an organization, particularly an organization like EDB that has such a strong culture. For those two reasons, we are now trying to encourage uh, more people to, to at least have meetings in the office where it is required for those two purposes. You know, one for idea generation, for, for generative conversations, and uh, two for the younger and newer employees of EDP, uh, where such gatherings can actually help them understand EDP more and, and be a lot more in sync with the culture of EDP. Right, that makes great sense. And what about the SMEs who are struggling right now? Do you have any words of wisdom? In the government, in the Ministry of Trade and Industry, Enterprise Singapore is the agency that's given the mandate to really look after and assist the SMEs. Uh, I would say that firstly, you know, Singapore as an economy is easy to operate in, mm-hmm. but hyper-competitive. But the ease of operating in Singapore, unfortunately, sometimes will allow owners of the businesses into an avoidance of risk. Ah. An avoidance of risk because if you operate in another country, in another market, it will be very different and it won't be something that they're familiar with. And they say, you know, why? Why bother? You know, my business in Singapore is so much easier to, to run. Yes, maybe the growth potential is not as large, but, you know, I'll just stay in Singapore. Fewer headaches. Yeah, fewer headaches, right? Yeah. So, unfortunately, I, I think going forward, they won't have a choice, at least not in the immediate future because... COVID-19 has dampened demand for many sectors and they have to look to other areas of growth. And Asia as a whole, Southeast Asia in particular, represent growth opportunities. Speaking of opportunities, we have the World Economic Forum coming to Singapore, which I think everybody is super excited about and it's such a feather in EDB's cap. So how involved were you in that happening? I know you've been going to Davos for several years, many years. We shared Professor Schwab's uh, view that global business leaders really needed to, to have face-to-face meetings again, and definitely across regions. And it allows for some of these conversations to still take place, but you know, on virtual format, right? And we, we believe that we needed to, to bring leaders together sometime in 2021. So when the WEF team asked if Singapore would be prepared to host this special annual meeting, we said yes, because we wanted to facilitate uh, this conversation. Uh, and they needed a location where they could give confidence to the potential delegates that they would be safe to do so. And you will keep them all in a certain hotel. A certain bubble, yeah. A certain bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it sounds exciting. I'm very proud of Singapore for doing that. I think that's super. And I think we do need them face-to-face, and people are desperate for it right now. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is Singapore has a few stereotypes. Many. Many, and I would say many of them are terrific, but there are some that aren't great. And I wonder what you think foreigners get most wrong about Singapore. I suppose it is the sense that some of the rules interfere with personal liberties. Uh, We have a slightly different view, uh, which is that there must be safety and order so that people will have their personal liberties. And it's a little bit more about trading off individual liberties versus what society as a whole needs. And that's central to why there could be disagreements between critics of Singapore and those who advocate for the way Singapore approaches governance. And it's constantly trying to find that balance, trying to explain the reasons why certain rules and laws are in place. We, we are not seeking that everyone agrees with us, but certainly to at least accept that you know, different societies will have a very different approach to these issues. I think that's really a core to some of the differences. 
Well, it's interesting. The last column that I did for the Straits Times, I argued that here there's more of a sense of we over me. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. during my trip to the U.S. to see my older parents, the problem with people not wanting to wear masks, it's all about me. And I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Singapore is that sense of the community is incredibly important. And perhaps that goes back to more of an Asian mindset than the Western mindset. Well, that's that, but that, I think government has to play a role. And the Singapore government isn't shy about playing that role. And it has to, to arbitrate, it has to intervene when necessary to provide that balance. Right. So is there a common thread that you see among successful businesses and successful professionals? No, I have to say that... Come uh, on, you're supposed to give us some great insight <laughs> on this for everybody listening. <laughs> I've had a great privilege of uh, meeting and engaging business leaders, right, for a good part of close to 30 years now. And I really have seen successful leaders, all shades, right? That those were just lucky, right time, right place, and they bring their company to greatness. That those who, because of their their genius that has defined the company, I mean, Steve Jobs is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. If a young person asks me for career advice today, I would say that I think you must like what you're doing. Uh, but equally important, you have to master whatever it is that you have set out to do. And, you know, actually this is just borrowed from the Japanese concept called Ikigai. And then the third is you might be passionate, you might have mastered it, but are people prepared to pay for it? <laughs> and if they're not, because your business model is flawed or upfront you gave away too much value for too little in return, then you don't have a business that's going to grow rapidly, right? And then fourth and final is, is are you contributing to the society in a positive way? So I think when you can check all those four boxes, you will have a great career, you will have a great business. Right. Well, I know when you walked into the offices here today at Gush Cloud, you saw many young people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the younger workers these days are kind of getting a bad rap. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a sense of optimism for mm. the youth? For absolutely, young absolutely. I think their their ability to balance the pursuit of you know higher salary, higher wages, or career progression is much more balanced compared to my generation. I mean, they believe in purpose. They believe in doing something that is worth their while. They believe in wanting to make a difference. As a result of that, sometimes they do change jobs because if they find a particular role not giving them that fulfillment, they are prepared to walk compared to my generation where we can't suck it up. And I think they get a bad rep for that. But if they find a particular role in an organization whose mission resonates with theirs, oh, they are very loyal and they're extremely hardworking. Pass the Power will continue after the break. know that you're the proud father of two daughters mm -hmm. and I wonder your outlook on gender equality and parity in their lifetimes and is it something that you talk about with them and do you want them to fight for what they deserve? I have to say that influence started with my mom right my mom was and actually remains a working mother <laughs> she's 85 now she continues to oversee our family business in KL but I was very fortunate you know the business was run out of shop house and we live on the, on the second floor and, and the, uh, the office was downstairs. So I was still able to, or rather she was able to be very much involved in, in my life, right? 
But I have her as a role model, as a woman who, who actually was able to really manage different aspects of her life and you know, did so with grace. <laughs> and so for my daughters, I actually point to my mom as someone that they can actually hopefully model themselves uh, to. Actually, not just my mom, my mother-in-law as well. She was also a working mother and really you know, played a huge role in, in bringing up Maisie and, and her brother. Maisie's my wife. Mm. And so today, I, if, if I were to advise my girls, it's firstly, a lot of discriminatory practices are being weeded out, whether it's Me Too or other movements, and they do have the opportunity to, to go as far as they want. Having said that, you know, it's not just women, it's men as well. You have to make trade-offs, right? I mean, if I want to be a better father, if I want to spend more time with my kids, there are certain trade-offs, right? One cannot be frustrated if you cannot have it all. I think women don't want it all. They just want to be paid the same thing a man is paid Absolutely. for the same job. Correct. So if they are delivering the same performance, if they're putting in the same amount of effort, they should be paid equally. And I think those are the sort of discriminatory practices that I'm very confident in our daughter's generation. A lot of it will be, will be addressed. Well, are you worried about social media in your daughter's lives? I'm very worried about social media. <laughs> so I'm very worried about social media because it's unfiltered. How do you cope with that? How do you police it? It's tough. I think every parent uh, is struggling with it. You know, some are resigned to it. We haven't quite decided that we want to be resigned to unfettered use of social media. But it's a fight. It's a fight every day. I use LinkedIn primarily to share news and information about what we are doing in Singapore, the projects that are coming in. And that's been very effective. Uh, so social media for businesses, it's a leveler. And you know you could be a small one man one woman business, and you can actually have a huge reach if you use social media effectively. But uh, social media, you know, for younger people, and and frankly, just as a platform for dissemination of ideas, the danger is that it's unfiltered, and you you are not necessarily getting information. Clearly, many would false, but even if it's accurate, it may not be balanced. Right. And that's I, my concern. Certainly not balanced. With all the algorithms, we're getting fed only what we agree with. That's right. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. Can you tell us about a time in your life when you hit a real low? Is maintaining positivity, I think the answer is yes, is it important in your life? I suppose I'm naturally optimistic. I tend to see what things can be and then to work towards that. I suppose one of it is outlook a certain mindset is that you ultimately you're responsible for your own happiness, right? And you decide, right? If you want to be happy, you're happy. No matter what the circumstances are. You know, I would visit some of the emerging economies in Asia and you come into contact with some of the happiest people in the world despite very dire economic circumstances. So in in a way it's a choice that we all of us can make, right? It's not to say I don't get angry. It's not to say that I don't get you know, disheartened. But you know, it's just about bouncing back. We're talking about how we sometimes just need to be, appreciate what we have. When Jim and I traveled the world yes. and we were in Africa and I would see these kids playing with bottle tops mm-hmm. and they're happier than so many children who have so much more. So That's we just right. need to be grateful for what we have and have a good mindset, I suppose. Just wondering, what are the three things you cannot live without? <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, firstly, it's... She's not a thing, but you know, she's my companion, my best friend. I, I don't think I can live without Maisie. We enjoy traveling together. We enjoy spending time together. We, we share our social lives. So her friends, you know, would be my friends. Her friends' husbands would be my friends and vice versa. Family, the extended family is very important. I 
very fortunate that my siblings and I were all very close and we're all very close with our mother, my mom. So that's very important and you know, I'm very happy that the same is true now with uh, Maisie's family as well. You know? So it's very nice that you know, prior to COVID, every December, 19 of us will be traveling. <laughs> We've done that since 2001 and unfortunately for COVID, you know, that kind of interrupted it. But it wasn't just December, it was Chinese New Year, it was my mom's birthday, and we would get together whenever we could. And, you know, we live in Hong Kong, in Australia, in Singapore, in Malaysia, right? So it's, it takes coordination, it takes effort. Third thing, <laughs> wines. I enjoy my oh, wines. Of course. And uh, I find that it's very helpful for work. You know, of course, I'm using that as an excuse because it just creates a conversation starter, right? And many people do enjoy their wines. Even if they don't necessarily know their wines, they will enjoy learning about it, right? And, yeah, so. Before we conclude, can you tell me, is there a cause or a couple of causes that are truly important to you? And is philanthropy something that you think about in your life plan? I have to say that actually it is about the survival of Singapore. It's about what is it that I can do both in my job, but also outside of that to ensure that Singapore will continue to thrive in the decades ahead. Uh, that drives me all the time. And if there's any way that I can contribute to that, even after you know, I, I leave the EDB, I leave the civil service, I, that would always be, I think, the cause that would, would motivate me to go beyond the call of duty. There's wealth and equality. And I think as a society, if we can't at least mitigate that, mitigate the ill effects of wealth and equality, we will not cry. I'm very fortunate, and I think many in Singapore would realize that we have a government that is very, very cognizant and trying its best to deal with this situation. You don't want to bring down those who can. You don't want to slow them down. But yet you need to find a way to lift the mm -hmm. ones who are struggling. But it's not even enough to do that anymore. You need to find a way to narrow the gap, right? And certainly for intergenerational mobility, this is so critical. And because you work for political leaders who are very driven by that, it's actually very, very motivating. I suppose the broader course is about addressing wealth inequality. There are ways to enable people to you know, make fish for themselves rather than be given the fish, right? But a lot of it has to be rethought, has to be reinvented because the ways that used to work in the past, they aren't working today. And they aren't working today because the, gap, the gaps have become so big. Right. Also, before we leave, can you tell me your favorite drink? Okay. And who, dead or alive, would you most love to have one with? You've said you love wine. Yes. So would it be a particular wine? Or is there a cocktail of choice? Or maybe it's a tea? It would be wines. Um, I think I'm fortunate in that I've had the opportunity to at least taste uh, some very, very good wines. Uh, but it would be some of the older vintages. Right? Mm -hmm. You can never have enough of those from 1982, for instance. Who I would love to have a glass of wine with, again, being very lucky, had the opportunity to meet many CEOs, but Warren Buffett is someone I, I've oh. never met. You read about him, right? And he's such a sage. And it'd be great to just spend some time with him, just to meet this man who is incredibly humble, but yet you know, has such a deep insight as to what makes companies uh, tick. Okay, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to name a second person, Peter Drucker. Incredible, right? I mean, his thinking about management and leadership is just way, way ahead of his time. Anything you'd like to plug to pass on the power before we part? For the current generation who are in the workforce, who are entering the workforce, I think the future is about how you create new businesses, products and services that address unmet needs in Asia. My generation grew up in an Asia that was poor. 
for the current generation, you have a fast-growing Asia that's obviously a lot of economic wealth is being created. But at the same time, a lot of unmet needs. Unmet needs from the middle class, unmet needs from in terms of urbanization and infrastructure. And I, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity to be creating new businesses at this point in time uh, because you, you will have demand. So that would be my plug. Asia, innovation, you know, and of course, uh, making use, harnessing technology to achieve that. Thank you, Swanjian, so much for joining me and passing on the power and sharing in conversations of hope. And I really appreciate you being here and sharing some of your life and some of your perspectives with our listeners. Thank you for having me, Paige. My pleasure. Hey guys, your time is precious and I'm so pleased and grateful you've joined my Pass the Power podcast. I'm new at this, so please help me grow these conversations of hope by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and click the follow button on Spotify. From Spotify, please share my podcast onto your Instagram stories. Don't forget to follow me on Insta at I am Paige Parker. Catch me on the next episode as we pass the power. <laughs>